You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. Okay, Bo and KD, today we're in lesson two of The Pursuit, and we're going to talk all about the Bible. Three reasons to trust the Bible. We're going to talk about historical evidence for believing in the Bible. We're going to talk about textual evidence for believing the Bible, and we're going to talk about personal evidence. So we're going to kind of get into some real great detail here. But before we do any of that, I just have a really simple question. How do Mormons view the Bible? A basic premise of Mormonism is that they believe in the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. That is a very big asterisk right there, right? Like the, as far as it is translated correctly, puts you on unstable ground immediately with the Bible. Um, And then it says, we believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God, right? In fact, Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book in the history of books. (laughs) And that's what Joseph Smith taught. So yeah, so so let's unpack what Mormons think about the Bible. So if, if, if Mormons think that the Bible is only the word of God, if it's translated correctly, or as far as it is translated correctly, okay, how do you define what is translated correctly? Now, now again, keep in mind, this comes from a teaching of Joseph Smith that there was this great apostasy. There was a falling away from biblical Christianity that occurred after the apostles died. So if there's this falling away, what Joseph taught was that the Bible became corrupted, right? The Word of God became corrupted so that over time, teachings were lost or changed. And the way I would always teach this on my Mormon mission was, have you ever played the game of telephone, mm. right? Uh, let's try it. Everybody sit in a circle, right? And we, we would, you know, and we'd be like, all right, so look. Was like, that your I'm missionary say, voice, by the way? Is that <laughs> how you spoke as a missionary? <laughs> I would have converted a lot of people if I spoke that way on a mission. No, um, so... <laughs> So, so playing the game of telephone was always how we would try to describe how the Bible was translated, which is so inaccurate. It's just like embarrassingly inaccurate to, to, to say that the game of telephone is how the Bible came to be, right? But, but let's, let's follow that line of thinking. For a Mormon, this is how you grow up. You grow up thinking the Bible's the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly. And in the game of telephone, you always play it growing up in, in like, you know, youth groups or whatever. And we would play this on a mission. So you, so you, for those that don't know the game of telephone, you'd say something, the next person tries to repeat it, and you go in this big circle of 20 people, and pretty soon you're saying that, like, you know, some, you're saying a phrase that had nothing to do with the phrase that began the game of telephone. Now, look, that is not, that is not how the Bible was translated. It is the most meticulously copied book in the history of books, right? There are thousands of manuscripts. Um, to prove the authenticity of the original text, right? So, so for Mormons to claim that the that they believe in the, the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it's translated correctly, but then for Joseph to claim that there were there were plain and precious truths removed from the Bible that he had to bring back, that's a big claim. It's a big bold claim. So, so what Joseph then began to do was he began to quote unquote translate or retranslate the Bible. So he had a King James Bible, which was the popular Bible back in the 1800s. I mean, it still is a very popular Bible, right? So 
So Joseph had the King James Bible, and he started changing verses in the King James Bible. Now, for any Christian, I know you're cringing right now, but that's... Um, Mormons believe that Joseph was the prophet, so he was the mouthpiece of God and, and knew the mind of God, knew the will of God. And so because they believed that Joseph was the prophet, they believed he had the power to essentially get it right. So Joseph goes on this you know, track of retranslating the Bible, and, and it changes some very, very important doctrine. Uh, one of the most important is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Like that is changed by Joseph Smith in his translation of the Bible. Now, for a modern-day Mormon, they're going to they're gonna have those Joseph Smith translations as footnotes in their Bibles, in their King James Bibles, and they maybe read them, maybe they don't. But the Mormon Church has basically endorsed the King James version of the Bible with Joseph Smith translations inserted into the the text as footnotes. So that's how they would that that's the Bible they would say is close enough to accurate that they can get behind. So so they'll study it in Sunday school, they'll preach or they'll they'll they'll, they'll add those scriptures to their talks that they give um, at church. But anytime you get in a conversation with a Mormon about what the Bible says about God, about what the Bible says about Jesus, what the Bible says about grace, often they're going to go back to, well, you can't really trust the Bible mm. because there, there's, there's been things removed or taken out from the Bible. So how did that impact on a practical level, Bo and KD, how did that impact what we would call spiritual discipline? So we're going to get into this later on in the series. We're going to talk about the different spiritual disciplines for Christ, for Christians, and one of those is reading the Bible. So did you did you read the Bible on a regular basis? Or maybe here's a better question. How often did you read the Bible versus how often did you read, say, the Book of Mormon? Uh, that's probably a different answer for different people. For, for me, I loved... I loved the Bible growing up, um, but I still read the Book of Mormon probably three times more than the Bible. Um, it seemed like every year in youth group, there was a push to read the Book of Mormon in a year. I swear it was every year. And so it was like, that's that's what you ended up doing. If you were a good Mormon kid trying to check all the boxes, you were you were doing your best to study the Book of Mormon and and at best, you were following footnotes that referenced a few verses in the Bible that supported what the Book of Mormon was teaching about Jesus or about God or whatever. Um, for you, it was probably even more so Book of Mormon. Like, I don't, had you read the Bible growing up, Katie? I'd read, um, I'd read the Bible with my family one time. And um, mm. <laughs> I um, also a pretty, I think, it's pretty common to also pull biblical scriptures out of context to sort of, you know, fit the narrative of the Book of Mormon and other things that you were studying in Mormonism. I think even now, so I know that the that this year they're studying um, the New Testament and they study the Old Testament for a year and then they also study the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, uh, Doctrine and Covenants. Um, but even when the, in my experience, when the Bible was being studied 
like in church, for example, on a Sunday, um, the lesson would be maybe about a certain block of a biblical scripture. First of all, King James version version is difficult to understand um, because it was written in Old English. So um, whenever I would read it, honestly, I'd I'd be like, "What in the heck is this talking about?" Let me go to the footnote. Well, footnotes don't give a ton of clarity, or you know, um, they're changed uh, by Joseph Smith gives his own interpretation of it. Um, but then when you're in church and maybe they're studying a block of scripture to clarify these biblical blocks of scripture, they will go to the Book of Mormon. They'll, they'll go to um, the prophets' teachings, you know, to clarify these blocks of the Bible to kind of give context or whatever. So, so you're not really getting into the word, I think, as much as maybe a well, definitely not as much as a Christian would would. Yeah, and you're you're also not getting the biblical context. You're getting you're, you're getting it from a Mormon point of view when you, when you study the Bible. So you're there, there's there's the, always a lean that is different from a biblical lean. That's a good point, right? Like you're not getting the context of um, of Paul and 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 who he was preaching to and why he was preaching to them and what, like it's it's always like a principle that you're pulling out. You're reading scriptures from the Book of Mormon as well, and then you're listening to words from modern day prophets or apostles that have spoken about this verse or whatever. And so it's, uh, it, it gets really muddled, I guess, when, um, studying the Bible as a Mormon, because there's so many other scriptures to, to kind of make sense of it all. And, and in order for Mormon theology to make sense, the Bible has to be on uneven ground in order for, in, right? Like in order for, for Joseph Smith to pull off what he's, what he's pulling off, you, you have to discredit the Bible because what the Bible teaches is not what Mormonism teaches, like flat out. And, and, and so the only way that Mormonism makes sense is if there was this big falling away, if key doctrines were changed and removed from the Bible, and if we can't trust the Bible. If that's the case, we, who are we going to trust? We got to trust the guy that says it's not trustworthy and the book that he gave us, and then you put the two together, and it paints a completely different picture about who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and what all that means, right? So, so that's, yeah, that's that's what it's like, I guess, growing up studying the Bible and the Book of Mormon together. It's a little bit different, but I'm trying to remember the question that kicked all this off, Brian. I think you asked just what is the Bible to a Mormon, and I would say the yeah, Mormons believe the Bible is the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And so, like you said, that asterisk is so huge. I mean, forgive my, my ignorance, but it's it seems like this would be really confused. The word muddled, everything gets muddled. It seems like it would be really hard to keep up on how to know what's true, because because it's not just the Bible with the asterisk and the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants. It's also the the prophet. The current prophet, the modern prophet, and the and the prophets before him. So really, it's this idea. You know, the the technical word for this is that that Mormons have an open canon, which means that that scripture is still being added to. It's st- it was added to in Joseph's day, and it's still being added to today. Proclamations come out when when you guys you know you do your your biannual. Uh, conferences and the prophet speaks and and Mormons are listening to that saying this is God's voice piece for today. So Christians don't have that. 
And I know Mormons would say, well, see, too bad. You guys, you guys are really missing out. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the, that's, I think, probably the argument. For but sure. My, my argument would be, man, does that seem really hard to keep up on? Man, does that seem really confusing? And I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that a person can speak with that authority because it would get really confusing to know what's right and what's wrong, right? For sure. It gets confusing. Things change. Rules change. Um, they say that doctrine hasn't changed, but it has. I mean, there, there's so many things that change over time um, in in Mormonism. I mean, you just look at the history of Mormonism, which, again, we've covered on, on this podcast in the past, and so much so much has changed. And so it does get it gets confusing. I think, um, you know, a, a believing Mormon would say, well, that's the beauty of it is that this is a living church. Like, this is... God has the opportunity to give revelation to us today. Like the same God of the Old and New Testament would do the same thing today. He would call a prophet. And it's like, no, that God's God sent his son, right? God in the flesh came, died, rose again. Like he said on the cross, it is finished. He did his work and 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 um and that was the that was the new covenant. That was the covenant he promised. And then he promised to 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 send his spirit to dwell in us. Like that was the promise, right? That was the covenant. So, like the the whole idea that we needed a mouth another mouthpiece for God to establish new covenants to bring us the temple. Like it's so backwards from what the Bible teaches. So again, you have to discredit the Bible for anything in Mormonism to make sense. Um, which if you look into how the Bible came to be and you don't just take Joseph's word for it, <laughs> that it's untrustworthy. Um, well, I, I guess we'll get into it as we go through the pursuit. It, it is trustworthy. Um, and you know, quite, quite a bit more trustworthy than one guy's word looking at a stone in a hat is what I would say. Mm. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about, and for, for, for today's topic, we're just going to give three reasons to trust the Bible. And guys, I really want you to help a Mormon to understand this because a Mormon's coming, even someone who's coming out of Mormonism and who's going through the pursuit with someone, they're still probably at the back of their mind. Was this true for you guys? At the back of your mind, you're still, I mean, you've been, you were told for 36 years that the Bible can't be trusted. So that was probably still ringing a little bit in your ears even now, well, not maybe not now, but when you approach this topic, when we went through this the first time, those are probably some questions you had. And and so, would you would you say that that even Mormons coming out of Mormonism who've said I recognize that stuff's not true, would you say that they still have a little bit of tr distrust when they think about the Bible? Um. Yeah, I would definitely say that. I think. Um, okay, so if we're talking to somebody who has already sort of deconstructed and realized that, you know, Joe Smith wasn't a true prophet and you've deconstructed that whole thing, well, then you might, as a Mormon, sweep everything out mm. because then the, the prophet doesn't speak for God anymore. The Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl Great Price... Um, Book of Mormon, that's all out the window. And for a Mormon, that includes the Bible. So it, it's not it's not surprising to me that a lot of Mormons tend to go atheist or agnostic because they've been taught their whole life that the Bible isn't trustworthy. And so then when they deconstruct this, they, they just kind of 
they just say, well, I can't trust anything then, which is sort of a sad way to go about it. But that's why I'm really excited to get into the, you know, the, the reality of how the Bible came to us now and the reliability that we can have in it. So let's get into it. Let's talk about it. The Bible, little factoid here, is the best-selling book of all time, and it's and it'll never be displaced. It'll always be the best-selling book of all time. It's unlike any other book written in history. It's changed lives like yours and mine. It's shaped entire entire cultures. The the American culture is shaped by the Bible. And uh, even though many people today would say, no, it's not, it, it, trust me, it was. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week some more. It, and it, it's, a te- it's an ancient text that claims to have been written by God himself. And what we're going to look at today is proof for that. And these, there's just three evidences that we want to talk through. And the first one is what we're just calling historical evidence. So historical evidence includes archaeology, it includes ancient manuscripts, and let's talk a little bit about that. This one might be the mo- maybe the most the most top of mind argument when it comes to like the telephone game, Bo, because because this shows us that fragments of biblical text for not just hundreds of years, but for thousands of years endured and were kept, and and we have proof of this. We have evidence of it. And I'm sure these are things that you never studied as a Mormon, but you can find this. If you go to a library, you can find this information. We're not making this stuff. Here, here are some stats that might shock some of our listeners. Okay, I want to give some, I'm going to throw some numbers out there uh, for some ancient writings. Everyone's heard of Aristotle, right? So Aristotle, this, this famous Greek philosopher, today... Currently, right now, we only have 49 copies of Aristotle's writings, like, existing. We only have 49. It'd be nice to have one of those copies. I'm sure it'd be worth an awful lot of money. There's only 49. Even That's pretty impressive, though, if you think about it, that Aristotle lived a long time ago, and we still have 49 copies of his writings. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean different different writings. You know, there might be copies of some of them being the same writings, but only 49. Now, Homer's... Iliad does better, and we have 643 copies in existence. So I want our listeners to just think about these numbers. 49 copies of Aristotle's writings, 643 copies of Homer's The Iliad, and and we're going to compare it to the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. We have, this is crazy when I learned this, we have almost... 5,700 Greek copies in existence that we have access to, that our translators have access to. 5,700 Greek copies compared to 643 of Homer's writing, 49 of Aristotle. And those are the, those are the best ones other than the New Testament. Those are the best ones. We have 50, almost 5,700 Greek copies. And here's what's crazy. If you can include the, the other languages besides the Greek copies of the New Testament, we have over 19,000 copies in those other languages. It's, so it's crazy to look at this. When you think, when, when Joseph Smith makes the claim, Bo, that it's not translated properly, I don't think he knew this information. Like, well, we can tell if it was or not because we have these copies in existence. 
Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. I think that's, for me, when I learned that, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> because again, like I, I had been, I had thought a completely different thing. I thought that it was as far as the Bible's translated correctly because there were things removed, there were things changed, there were things omitted from the Bible is mm -hmm. what I was taught as a Mormon, and that's just not the case. Like we have so, so much manuscript evidence um, to prove that the Bible was meticulously copied and passed down um, accurately and uh, and from the original text. So that's that's what's so cool about it is and and for any you know Mormon listening that I hope that that is a bit of a wake up call to to realize what is trustworthy and what is not. Right? Um, the Bible is trustworthy. Now you still have to make a faith decision on whether or not you believe in God and you believe in what the Bible teaches, but um but the fact of the Bible being uh accurate from the source material is is a fact. And and that and that means that big asterisk that Joseph claims of we believe in the Bible as far as it's translated correctly because there's been things changed and removed and, and lost. That's just not true. Okay, let's talk about the Old Testament for a second cuz this gets I think even cooler when you th when you consider the Old Testament because up until about 70 years ago the oldest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament were called it was something called the Masoretic text this the Masoretic text dated back to about 800 AD so the the Masoretes were were a group of I think they were scribes and they they had they copied these this text so cuz you got to remember this they didn't have like they didn't have um, Xerox machines back then. So if you if you have, let's say, the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, if you have the book of Isaiah, Isaiah wrote the original, and then over time, Hebrew scribes would copy, painstakingly copy the, the text of Isaiah, and they might make 10 copies of that, let's say. And, and over time, we don't have the original Isaiah text but we have the scribes' copy of the text, and then and just think of that for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. So that's that's how we have these. When we talk about these manuscript copies, that's what we're talking about: is this painstaking um, process that these that these Hebrew scribes would go through. So the oldest copy that we had in 1947 was called the Masoretic text, dating back to 800 A.D. But you know. It was Isaiah was written, let's say, 800 BC. So that's a long time. And the question I think that a Mormon could ask is, well, well how do we know it's true? How do we know it was not even translated correctly? How do we know it was copied down correctly? How do we know the, that in 1600 years? And to me, that's a legitimate question. Yeah, how do we know the game of telephone didn't occur here? Exactly. So here's what happened. In 1947, a shepherd boy discovers these scrolls in some remote caves in the Middle East. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of people know about this. In fact, there was there was a display that came through Salt Lake City a couple of years ago, and they had some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was actually pretty cool, but I was really surprised that they did it. Because, because listen to this, when, when these Dead Sea Scrolls came out, uh, opponents of the Bible said, oh, we're going to, this is going to prove, and I'm not even talking about Mormons. I'm just saying like atheists, they said, this is going to prove how bad the Bible is, how illegitimate the Bible is, because, because some of those scrolls, some of those scrolls dated back to a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic text. 
So think about that. Some of these fragments were a thousand years older than the Masoretic text, the oldest text that we had in existence. So honestly, if I lived in 1947 as a Bible scholar, I might have been a little nervous, like, geez, I hope I hope this doesn't debunk my whole faith. I hope, like, I hope, I hope it matches up. Honestly, guys, I, I've thought about that. I think I would have been pretty nervous, and I would have probably been reading articles from atheists saying, oh, you wait, this is going to disprove it. But here's the cool thing. When they got these things translated, this Dead Sea Scrolls, it, the, the, in fact, the Isaiah manuscript itself was almost entirely intact from the Dead Sea Scrolls, so that's a good example to use. The Isaiah manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls was over 95% identical with the Masoretic text. And the only things that were different were small little things that made no difference to the text itself. It might have been the way that, it, that a T was crossed or an I was dotted, basically, is a good way to explain it. So that's crazy to think about, guys, that the differences were so minor, and it was a thousand years older. And to me, that if I was a, coming out of Mormonism, I'd be like, Oh my gosh, then why are we claiming that this wasn't translated correctly? This was something that gave me hope when we were going through the pursuit because um, I, you know, honestly just didn't want to be tricked again, you know? So mm. I came into this particular lesson thinking, oh, okay, I just don't want to be tricked again. I just, I want to see evidence. I want to see, you know that this is real. And when I read all this, I was just like, oh, this gives me a lot of hope. This gives me something to rely on to be able to find God in my life again. Okay. So that's the historical evidence, but that's just the first piece of evidence. The next one is what we would call textual evidence. And textual evidence means that we look at the text itself and we evaluate the text not not in terms of history or or archaeology, but we we evaluate the text. We we evaluate the Old Testament. We evaluate the New Testament. We evaluate these you know these books, the the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We we evaluate Paul's writings. We evaluate like when you think about it, just as one whole literary whole. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about textual evidence. Like, does it? Because what we're claiming as Christians is that that God's the author of the Bible. That's what we're claiming. We're saying God authored it from beginning to end. So it would make sense that if God's the author, that it tells one cohesive story from beginning to end, if God's really behind it. Because that's what we believe. We believe the Holy Spirit inspired human authors over the course of 1,500 years to write faithfully write down these stories and so you've got to ask the question, does that make sense that God's really behind it? And here's what's cool about it. There are over 40 different authors that contributed to the Bible, the pages of the Bible. There's 66 books. It was written over the course of 1,500 years. It was written from the vantage point of, let, for example, Moses, a Jewish slave who was raised in the house of Pharaoh. He wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books. And then in the New Testament, John, he was a fisherman, one of Jesus' disciples. He was just a fisherman, and he turned into a revolutionary. He wrote first and second and third John. He wrote Revelation, so four books in the New Testament. And then you've got, you've got books by 
written by shepherds. You've got books written by kings. You've got books written by prophets in the Old Testament. Books written by tax. Matthew was a tax collector. He wrote the book of Matthew. Luke was a doctor. He wrote Luke and Acts. So think about this. And then, and then of course, Paul, don't forget Paul, he wrote half of the New Testament books. He was a religious Pharisee, and then he, be, and then he, be, he was persecuting the followers of Jesus, and he, then he became a Christian, and, and he wrote so many of the books. So if you think about just all these different authors, most of them never met each other. A lot of them weren't even aware of some of the other books that were written. And all of these writings would end up in the same place. Bible, 66 books of the same Bible. And here's what's cool about it. It tells one cohesive story from beginning to end. It's all about Jesus. It's a story about Jesus coming to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. And it's this beautiful story that is connected from beginning to end, from the opening pages in Genesis 1, which by the way, you mentioned, Bo, John 1, 1, even just Genesis 1 and comparing it to John 1, you know, in the beginning, God created, it says that in Genesis. And then in John 1, it says, it's, it uses some of the very same language, but now it's tying it to Jesus that that the word was with God and the word was God. It's just so beautiful. And the more I study the Bible, the more I read, the, I've studied the Bible for over 50 years. The more I study it, the more I fall in love with it. I love God's word. I love the Bible. And textual evidence to me is so powerful to see how cohesive this is. God really is behind the writing of it. And there are just a few few little nuggets that we can bring people that might help you to understand this as the, as the textual gem that it really is. One thing is that of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, one of the 12 tribes, was the one predicted to be the one through whom Jesus would come. And that's exactly what happened. So look, if you if you you're reading the Old Testament, it says that that Judah very clearly in Genesis 49, Mormons would understand this when when Israel was blessing his sons, he's he speaks this blessing over all of his sons at the end of Genesis, and he speaks this really weird blessing over Judah. And you wouldn't think that Judah would be the one. You'd think it'd be the firstborn, or you'd think it'd be one Joseph, maybe, who is like the the godliest of all the sons. But he said he speaks this really weird blessing that when we look back, we realize he's talking about Jesus. And guess what? Jesus came through the line of Judah. He didn't come through the line of the firstborn or through the line of Joseph, like the favorite son or Benjamin, the favorite son. It's Judah. How, how in the world? How, like, how could Israel, that was his name, how could he have known that as he was giving these blessings? There's no way he could have known that. How could Moses even have known that? When he writes it down, he couldn't have known that. that. That had to be written by God. That's a prophecy, essentially a prophecy fulfilled part of textual evidence. Or how about this prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? And maybe you're like, okay, well, Bethlehem, that's, we all know Bethlehem. We've all heard of Bethlehem. That's like New York or Chicago or something. No, Beth- <laughs> Bethlehem was a no, was a, was like in the sticks. It was a nobody town. And yet Micah 5.2 prophesies that, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And sure enough, Jesus comes from Bethlehem. And just one more. Pro- the prophets wrote the, the last several books of the Old Testament are prophetic books. And these prophets wrote about the, de- the torture and death of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened. And it was shocking, the accuracy that we read about it in like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, 
I mean, you read that and you're like, I'm reading something that sounds like crucifixion in Psalm 22. It sounds like crucifixion. But that was like 800 years before crucifixion was even invented because crucifixion was a Roman thing. So you look at all these things and you're like, how in the world could this be? How, 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 certainly the New Testament writers must have written the Old Testament, but no, that's not what happened. The Old Testament was, was there, was there long before the New Testament, before Jesus even came and was born into the world. And so the only conclusion we can come to when we look at this textual evidence, and there's so much more, this is just a little bit of it, is that, that it's true. Like it, this this is reliable. God's word is reliable. It is trustworthy, and it is true. Yeah. So, so I mean, look at what Jesus says um, in John five thirty nine. Right? He says, "You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me." the The story of the Bible from beginning to end is pointing to the Savior. Right? The law of sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to the need for. A, a blood atonement, right? For Jesus to come, uh, uh, live a sinless life, and die on the cross, and 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 then His blood as the as the sign of the covenant. So um, that's what's so beautiful about the the scriptures, about the Bible, is that um, they they point to Jesus. It's one cohesive story. It's a salvation story about God um, and about us. Yeah, would you guys say I, we've talked about this before on this podcast that that the sense that you get in biblical Christianity, going to church, hearing sermons, singing worship songs, and even reading the Bible, that all of it points to Jesus. All of it is about elevating and worshiping Jesus and shining a spotlight on Jesus. Would would you say what would you say? that Mormonism points to? What would you say that script, the, the four scriptures of Mormonism points to? Would you say that they point to Jesus as well? That's the singular focus? Um, not the singular focus. No, they definitely have scripture that point to Jesus. Again, they believe partially in the Bible. They believe there's plenty of scriptures in the Book of Mormon that reference Jesus or teach about Jesus, right? Uh, but the the singular focus, no, absolutely not, right? The The, the focus is on um, families, the focus is on promises you make to God, the focus is on the temple, the focus is on... Prophets, works for the dead, which is the temple. So, well, when I was talking to one of my Mormon friends, I was trying to explain Christianity to her, and I said, you know, like, she's like, well, we do believe in the same Jesus. And I said, no, the Bible teaches a different Jesus. And she's like, well, I guess you're right because we have Jesus, but there's some other things on, you know, that, that need to be done besides that. And it's almost like Jesus is sort of buried under these, these other things that are taught and need to be done. Yeah. Or, or it's like that Jesus maybe isn't enough in the Mormon church, because even if you have Jesus, you still need to do all these other things yourself to actually make it to God. Right. So that's, um, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that Jesus, God in the flesh, is enough. Um, the only sinless life uh, and the only one able to, uh, to reconcile us to God. And that's what he does. And that's, that's what's so cool about the Bible. I just love, I love the Bible. And, and over the last you know year, I've fallen in love more than ever before with the Bible, having read the Bible multiple times before. 
um, from a different perspective, now reading it from a biblical perspective and from a more trusting perspective, it just is so beautiful and and so eye-opening and and I would say life-changing um, to experience the Bible, uh, yeah, as the Word of God. And that leads to this last evidence. To me, this is the... I don't know. I think maybe for a Mormon, this is the most powerful evidence because Mormons love feelings, right? And experiences. I mean, that's what you're told is, I remember when I walked through the the temple, the the sisters giving the tour said, you should just read the Book of Mormon and and what do they say? They And pray yeah. about it and see Pay how it feels. How you feel yeah, yeah. when you read it and pray to, to know if it's true and, and pay attention to how you feel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's Feeling is a big deal in Mormonism, for sure. Yeah, and this last evidence is, we just call it the personal evidence. So the historical evidence was, it was logical, and textual evidence is logical. These are more like, use your head, guys, use your head, and, and put two and two together. But this last one is so powerful to me, it's it's just personal evidence, because when you zoom out and you and you really just look at some of the li- the changed lives of the followers of Jesus... It really is so compelling that the Bible is true. I mean, think of some of these examples. Peter. Peter was a guy who was impetuous. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He he denied Jesus after, you know, he was the first one to say that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't even fully understand that. Like literally in a couple verses later, he, he, he rebukes Jesus for saying that he, that he would have to go to the cross. Jesus He's like, no, you're not Jesus. You're not gonna. Go, you're not gonna have to suffer and die. So Peter was that guy. He was the guy who, who stepped out of the boat, wa- tried to walk on the water until he realized what he was doing, and then he started to sink. He was the guy who cuts off the Roman soldier's ear when Jesus is get is being taken away. That's Peter. And and of all these things that he did, Peter's the guy who denies Jesus three times. It, to me, this is a guy because of his sh- his guilt and shame that he must have felt. This is a guy that that you would think would have just bolted, but yet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, reinstates him three times. He says, "Feed my sheep" three times. For every time he denied Peter, denied him. Jesus reinstated him, and Peter ends up being a pillar of the church. Peter ends up being just an incredible leader, just an incredible witness to who Jesus is. There's no way that Peter would have done that if Jesus hadn't resurrected from the dead. To me, that's such proof at this of the central theme of the Bible, which is that Jesus, Jesus died and rose again. So Peter's one example. Thomas is another example. Here's a guy who missed out on the meeting that the other disciples had with the resurrected Jesus, and they come and tell him about it. And he's like, I'm not going to believe it. That Thomas is the guy, Bo, that probably you and I can relate the most to. We're kind of lo- or like logical thinkers are can relate to Thomas because we're, I'm a skeptic. I think you're a, a little bit of a skeptic too. And I love Thomas's story. Thomas is one of the reasons I believe in Jesus is because I can relate to him. He said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And then Jesus appears to him and he sees it. And then and then Thomas declares his faith in Jesus. Such a cool story. And then, of course, there's Paul, this, this, this guy we mentioned who is a self-righteous Pharisee. He was literally persecuting the followers of Jesus. Something must have happened that he did a complete 180. And now he joins these fishermen and tax collectors. And he, and he becomes the most prolific author of the New Testament and... 
so all these changed lives, we can go on forever, all these changed lives, but really all three of these guys and all of the early disciples gave up their lives for Jesus. There's no way that would happen unless what we're reading in the pages of the Bible actually happened. These guys wouldn't die for a lie. They wouldn't die for a joke. They wouldn't die for a hoax. They went, they went to their own crosses because what we read in the Bible really did happen. And it's not just the personal evidence of these guys from 2,000 years ago. Really, it's even personal evidence from people like you guys. So, Bo and KD, maybe we can end this episode just by you guys. I don't know. How would you, how would you say it as, as Mormons? You would have said, bear your testimony. Maybe it's a, good, maybe it's a <laughs> yeah. good thing for you to do to sort of bear your testimony about, about just the simplicity that you trust yeah. that the Bible is reliable. Yeah, if I'm giving a Mormon testimony, any Mormon listening knows what's coming next, which is, I'd like to bear my testimony. Oh my I know the church is true. <laughs> I love my mom and dad. Yeah, that that would be a Mormon testimony right there. So it always starts with, I know the church is true. Well, anyway. Yeah. Um, well, no, but that's interesting, is, Bo, because we, that's not what ours would be about. No, of course no. not. Yeah, well, no. like as a Christian now, what? How would you, how would you share your own personal testimony with somebody yeah. as a Christian? Yeah, I. It's it's a great question. I I would just say that I um, believe in. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe that. I believe that the God of the Bible um, is the God of the whole universe. I believe that He created all things. Um, he created us in His image, and He wants relationship with us to the point where He came bled and died and rose again so that we could be in right relationship with him, even though we are undeserving and imperfect beings. That, that's, that's what I believe in. And I believe that because of what it teaches in the Bible, uh, because of what I read in those pages. And not just because of how I feel when I read it. I feel amazing when I read it, but um, because of what it's done in my life and yeah, because of the other evidences for, for sure. So that would be my testimony, right? I would have given a much different testimony as a Mormon. Uh, my testimony as a Mormon would have been focused on the church being true, on what Joseph said he saw and did being true, and on Jesus dying for us being mm. true, right? So, yeah, it's, it's, the focus is different, and, and I guess what I would say to, you know, the Mormons listening is, like, just keep studying the Bible and, and study it without any preconceived notions. And what you'll find is uh, you'll find a, a loving God that wants relationship with you. Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.